Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The dark days of Zimbabwe returned, and people realized very quickly that we, uh, we just went from one frying pan right into another one. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've been waiting to release this episode for about a year now, and I'm incredibly excited to finally share it with you. Today, we're going to talk about human rights, corruption, hyperinflation, rapacious economic development, a currency war, a diaspora, and one man's mission to make meaningful change for suffering people in a failed state. Last spring, I was at a big conference where I spent most of my time in the media bullpen. And while I was there, a good friend of mine, who's a celebrated documentarian, introduced me to my guest today. But before he did, he pulled me aside, glanced over his shoulder and said, this guy could be the future chairman of the African Union. Once we started talking, I immediately understood what he meant. Last summer, I spoke with Robert Chapman about his story, why he decided to run for president of Zimbabwe, the history of his home country, and the struggle for democracy reform. In this episode, we're bringing you that conversation. We've waited to release this episode because of concerns around safety and security for Robert and his team. But we also decided that there's been so much movement over the last nine months that I needed to sit down with Robert for a second conversation. So in part two, you'll hear a conversation we just recorded where we talk about how the landscape has changed over the last year, his goals for rebuilding the economy and infrastructure in Zimbabwe, why this is in America's interest, the growing Chinese influence in Africa, the challenges his campaign has faced, and his plan to win. Very excited for you to meet him. Robert is an entrepreneur and pilot who was born in Harare, Zimbabwe. He was educated in London before ultimately settling in the United States, and he's running for president of Zimbabwe. You're going to want to strap in for this one. Robert, thank you for making the time to be here in studio, and welcome to Politicology. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ron. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
So when we met back in April and started talking about your story, your campaign strategy and your preparation, the myriad risks involved, I was so fascinated that it seemed like hours had evaporated before before I knew it. And then, you know, we, we looked up and found ourselves in some other location. So while the rest of our conversation is ultimately going to accrue to the question that I asked you first, which was why you're doing this and how you're doing this, um, I'd like to start with some of your personal background first, uh, if that's okay, to give our listeners a sense of the life experience that has brought you to this moment. So let's start with your childhood. All right. So, you know, born in Harare, you know, the most common thing when people look at me, uh, the person that sees that, that I'm mixed. My father's white uh, British and my mother is black Zimbabwean. And they met while my father was, uh, was based in, uh, in Zimbabwe in the late 70s and was moving up and down the, uh, the uh, southern part of Africa. So born in Zimbabwe, uh, in Harare. And, uh, you know, right before my third birthday, about 10 days before my third birthday, my parents passed away in a car accident uh, about four days before Christmas. And so the, the story behind it, don't know, but it was during independence timeframe, which was a very hostile time to being in a racial relationship, so to speak. And, uh, in Zimbabwe, where Zimbabwe was, um, had just gone through its independence from, um, from Ian Smith and colonialism. So growing up was a little bit challenging. You know, we moved from um, big town and then went and found ourselves, my sister and I, who was 18 months old at the time, found ourselves at uh, living with our grandparents who were raising us. My grandfather now, he's very educated. Um, he founded the two first black schools uh, in the small town I grew up in, Cochinoy. And they were the first black schools inside the colonial regime in the 60s um, that were not mission-based or Catholic, any church affiliation. They were actual independent government-based funded schools. And he had to lobby for that wow. for the folks that were there and the entire community. That school still is still, those schools are still there They're today. Still there. They're still there today. And so uh, Chinoy Primary is one of them, the most popular one in, in, in the area. But my grandfather's a founder of that. So, you know, education is a big part. My grandmother's a caretaker or was a caretaker. She's retired now. Um, and she was a, the first black matron at Chinoy High School, which is an all-white school uh, for the white farmers in the 60s. And my mother went to that school. I went to that school. And my gr- grandmother worked there when my mother was, uh, was, a, was a scholar. And uh, she was there when I was a scholar uh, in the boarding school. But uh, she worked there and took care of probably over 10,000 students over a period of about 40 years. And uh, retired today. And when we talk about money, we'll talk about yeah. that story is going to be relevant. You talk about someone working for uh, government for 40 something years. And then when I tell you the ret- her medication is higher than the actual retirement check, oh so the authorized med- medication will get into that. Yeah. So growing up was very challenging, you know, lost parents, you're mixed race. And all of a sudden you find yourself in the colonial ghetto, which we call the location. So I grew up in the colonial ghetto where we would be called racist names. Um, but because you were mixed. Because we were mixed. Okay. We, we were white. And, um, you know, my grandfather ended up getting blind in, in 1989, story for another day. Um, and so my, it was tough for my grandmother to work and raise two gr- grandchildren, you know, that she, essentially she thought she was done raising kids until her daughter passed away. And now she's left with her, with her grandkids to raise. So we went to boarding school and that was challenging. So from, from grade one or year one until I finished high school, I was in, I was in boarding school. My sister and I both were in boarding school. Yeah, so uh, we only saw family about three months out of the year. The other nine months, you'd be in school. So it was very challenging, very tough, but um, it, it, kept me, it kept me whole. 
in the off season, uh, farming was a big part of it. So agriculture is a big part of Zimbabwe. Uh, you know, sort of our symbol of wealth is land and, and livestock. And so we, uh, we have those, um, you know, we, we participate in those things very heavily. So yeah, that's a little bit about my childhood, but, um, you know, I did grow up in a house that was extremely loving because although the circumstances in which we found ourselves in were challenging, um, there was no question that uh, my grandmother made sure that we felt love and care uh, for my sister and I, and we've, you know, all grown up and have families of our own now. So when did you ultimately leave Zimbabwe? I left after high school. Okay. Uh, so I finished my high school. I was cricket captain in my senior year. <laughs> I don't know if it's something to brag about in America. <laughs> People are like, what's cricket? What's cricket? <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we, yeah, I finished and I went to college in the UK and I went there for, uh, for uh, business aviation. So I've, I've loved planes since I was a kid. Okay. And then from there, I moved to the United States. Okay. And in the United States, what took you to the United States? Uh, it was, uh, you know, work and um, an opportunity. You know, the UK is fantastic, but it's a very small place. And, you know, it's essentially... Um, you're in competition in extreme ways, very, very small in London, but the United States is far greater, um, offers huge opportunity. And the rate of um, the ability to stand back up after you fail in the U.S. is far easier. Uh, it's very forgiving. If you're, if you're, if you're strong-willed and, you're, and you have a great bright mind, the United States offers uh, the opportunity for you to try and fail and not be fatal, right. so to speak. So right. uh, the U.S. was always attractive. And I think it's probably the best decision I made at uh, at 19 years old to move to the United States. Or the ability to fail fast. There you as, go. As, yes, as they say, that's a good one. So your professional background is is what exactly? You moved to the United States to uh, for for work, right? Yes. And what is your, what's your professional background? Oh man, that's a uh, yeah. <laughs> I've done so much in, in the U.S. Um, initially, the goal was to be a commercial pilot. You know, I thought I would be working for someone like Delta American Airlines for my entire life. But uh, 9/11 changed that. I moved here right before 9/11. Uh, so that career changed. So I started looking at business and business consulting. I always had a knack for entrepreneurship. Working hard was not a problem. And I found myself there and in various uh, various industries. So today I'm involved in, in healthcare, uh, uh, whether it's in uh, consulting startups or in um, uh, sort of advisory roles. And then the other one is energy, uh, renewable energy specifically. So we've participated in know, myself and our company have participated in so many opportunities in regards to uh, energy, which includes agriculture. If you look at indoor grow, hydroponics, uh, to uh, Bitcoin mining is something that's taking place now, taking, you know, uh, commercial industrial companies off the grid to, to allow the grid to support residents in, in communities. And then just to turn some communities uh, green that might be using coal or, or um, uh, nuclear for, for energy resource. So it's been fantastic. So the U.S. has allowed me to really go into an industry, learn and, and go from there. I think just as a very quick detour, when you mention Bitcoin mining and renewable energy, people are, a lot of listeners are having a little short circuit happen in their brain because they, <laughs> they because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of the information around Bitcoin and, uh, and, and the environment is, um, uh, contradictory, right? They, they're, they, they, they're not, they're not compatible. Right. Uh, um, and, and so maybe, can you speak to that for just a brief moment? Like wh- how is, Bitcoin related to gr- the greening of a grid? Uh, so, yeah, that's a great question. And even solar itself would be, if you really paid attention to it, you, you especially solar projects, you, sort of an oxymoron to chop down a forest to build solar panels in the name of being green. Right. Right? Yeah. So, of course. So, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so even when you look at that, you yeah. have to be very cautious when you right. go through environmental assessments. So, but Bitcoin... Uh, what they challenge they face, uh, you know, and I don't know if they want the association with cannabis or hemp growers, uh, is that they, it uses a tremendous amount of power. 
And in doing so, it pulls, uh, it, it strains the, the national grid. So if you look at the states today that have uh, cannabis grow, you can see that the few that do, I think the last time I read the statistic was about 3% of the national grid. So we just come full circle to Bitcoin. Bitcoin does a handful of things. Uh, Bitcoin mining uh, does a handful of things where the computers generate uh, heat um, that could also be tra uh, translated into uh, power. They can turn around and use that into power. They need cooling systems for these computers to remain cool and continue to function. While it is a necessary uh, aspect of their ecosystem, the strain on the national grid is a problem. And that, that strain is, affects residences, it affects people. It could even, to the point where it might even um, cause a grid to crash. So as a resident, you really don't want that. And you want the business owner to be proactive and you want them to be uh, thoughtful in the way that they're doing things. And Bitcoin's model of independence and decentralization, it would make sense to have, for them to have a decentralized grid, something that's not on the national grid. So if we have that as part of the model nationally to protect citizens and protect communities um, where hospitals might rely on that national grid, which we saw in Texas with the snow, obviously not affiliated with Bitcoin, but it showed how um, easy it is to just trip a national grid as we saw in Texas. So something like Bitcoin mining, which is, uh, is fantastic that they're doing that. Uh, it's great that it, uh, it's part of an ecosystem. If decentralization is the model, then uh, having an independent power source or recyclable power source or a green power source like solar, uh, Trigen, which uses uh, natural gas for heating, cooling, and energy, um, it allows citizens to continue to enjoy the low tariffs that they have in some of these communities. Back to running for president of Zimbabwe. <laughs> so I think one of the first things I asked you when we met was, you know, why are you doing this? And, and I think followed up by you realize you might get yourself killed, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's do some background on Zimbabwe, right? Can you lay the foundation for listeners of how Zimbabwe became established as an independent country uh, in the late 70s and early 80s? Yeah, absolutely. So going back a little bit further, you know, Zimbabwe, you know, also known as Rhodesia. So some people might know that name more familiar, Rhodesia. And, the, and, and it's, it's crazy to think of a country as small as Zimbabwe. So give context, it's somewhere around the size, I believe it's uh, Utah. Uh, population about 15 million to date. Um, but the reason why Rhodesia is really big is because it's uh, rich in natural resources, which is, goes back to the days of even Cecil John Rhodes, you know, hence oh, wow, Rhodesia. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, so, right, you right. know, as he was doing the Cape to Cairo, where he was going to take over Africa and go from Cape to Cairo, Cecil John Rhodes is buried in Zimbabwe. He didn't want to leave. Yeah, he didn't want to leave. And there's an interesting history there uh, and why uh, he loved this country. And if you think of the most uh, uh, popular place in, in Zimbabwe is Victoria Falls, mm -hmm. uh, the one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, so for me, Zimbabwe is, is a country that is touched by God. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're on the ground today, that may not show it. So now we come full circle into, uh, if you go through Ian Smith's story, uh, he has a book uh, uh, which gives some context on where people thought Ian Smith was part of the Brits, he had actually stood up against them and wanted Zimbabwe to be independent. And he ended up having sanctions and uh, the Brits supported the independence because they couldn't, they couldn't control Ian Smith anymore. Ah. So they came in and they would come now into what they consider the liberation struggle, the liberation war that took place. And this was black against white now. And okay. yeah, so this is black Zimbabweans uh, fighting for independence. This so, was in the seventies. This is in the seventies. Okay. And, and, and no, no question about it, uh, uh, the mistreatment and the brutality of uh, black Zimbabweans in Zimbabwe was real. So the fight was legitimate. 
they needed international supports for them for them to have independence and be free. It just so happened Ian Smith had also spat in the face of the folks that he had been supporting. And it actually had served in their army as well uh, earlier on in oh, World wow. War II. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of this perfect storm that aligned and several people involved in this liberation struggle. Some are not with us today. Uh, there's folks like Hebe Chitepo and many, many other, uh, other uh, founding fathers of Zimbabwe that fought through the liberation struggle. But once the violence um, started taking taking amend, Zimbabwean people are hard. We are negotiators. We're you know our uh, um, literacy rate is is very high as a country. So we typically stay away from the violence part, which is absolutely necessary. So they went into uh, Lancaster House Agreement came out. Zimbabwe was independent um, in, uh, in 1980. And so we saw the change. Uh, Mugabe was considered, a lot of people think that Robert Mugabe was the first president. There was actually one before him called Kenan Banana, who ran in the interim of independence to when Mugabe came in. So a lot of people don't wow. realize there's another man who was in between. Yeah. yeah. Who's, um, I don't know if I should mention this, he looked mixed. So maybe there's something there with me. <laughs> he had his pictures, he looked mixed. Uh, but that's how he came in. And then Mugabe came in under the uh, Zeno PF. So there were essential, essentially two parties. Yeah. Zimbabwe broke them into two, two main tribes. There's, there's about this 13. This is after liberation. After liberation. Well, from during, the Brits. During, during the, the struggle, liberation struggle, the war, yeah. uh, of liber, of, uh, the war of, of liberation, we call it Chimaranga, the war of liberation. Chimaranga? Chimaranga. Okay. And so uh, during the liberation war, the Ndebeles were essentially um, you know, uh, you know, folks that had moved from northern South Africa, Zulus that had moved up into Zimbabwe, Ndebele tribe. It's a different, it's a different uh, dialect. We have 13, but they're the second, uh, they're one of the two main ones. Okay. And the Shanas, which is what I am, uh, in the northern part of the country and uh, considered more pop- more populous in the country, okay. they had their two groups and formed their uh, and merged together to win the liberation struggle against uh, against uh, Ian Smith and, and and the white oppressive regime. Wow! And so when Mugabe came in, um, one of the one of the founding fathers for the Ndebele uh, uh, folks was Joshua Mkomo, uh, was also his vice president. So. There was a sense of harmony okay. that was now moving even from the tribe side. And then we, we can talk about another story, but that came in where genocide took place in the late uh, 1980s now. And that's where we start to see Zimbabwe falling apart, but this time at the hands of its, of its own. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about Mugabe, because uh, so far in this story, he is a liberator, right? At, at this point in the story. Um, but he was the prime minister and then the president for nearly 40 years. After there, after this, right? Johnny Carson, not that Johnny Carson, a different <laughs> Johnny Carson, uh, who is a former U.S. ambassador to Zimbabwe. Um, he had a 37-year career uh, in the U.S. Foreign Service. Described Mugabe as an extremely articulate man, very polished, very disciplined, very resolute, very focused, very determined, and a man who is capable of manipulating other people to do some of the most heinous things you can imagine. End quote. Can you give our listeners an understanding of the corruption and the human rights abuses that happened under Mugabe? Yeah. So, man, what a great description uh, he gave there of Mugabe. You know, one of the quotes that I love, uh, I love Batman, right? And one of the quotes, I think it was uh, Harvey Dent who says, you know, you live long enough to find yourself the villain. You go from the Mm -hmm. hero, you live long enough, you find yourself the villain. And essentially that's what happened with Mugabe. When I think of Mugabe, I think of that quote. It sounds, compared to Johnny, Johnny Carson's <laughs> quote here, mine sounds very comical, uh, as it would be from comic books. But um, Mugabe did liberate the country. Now, there is debate on that process because there was some other people, uh, Josiah Tungo Gara and some other folks, 
who had really led that Mugabe very articulate uh, these folks uh, passed away and he found himself in the position of power and this debate on how that mm. came around <clears throat> in his history but nonetheless he was the you know president of uh, of Zimbabwe initially uh, Mugabe I believe had the right intent uh, you know the, the right uh, the right idea in the Zimbabwe he wanted he really did build the education system for uh, for black Zimbabwe uh, he built m- many many schools but then came this idea of holding on to power and the, mm. and which we still face today through um, some of his uh, his party structures where they believe because they fought the liberation struggle the country belongs to them they own mm. the title deeds the country and this is where the mistake starts to take place there <sighs> And we start to see the brutality. People speak up against him, human rights, human rights abuses. You even go into rural areas, uh, aid or food or access to certain resources, inputs to have outputs of so fertilizer, seed, and things that, as we talk about the wealth in, Zim- in Zimbabwe, is agriculture and livestock. Communities that have spoken up against the, against Mugabe or even just a, a statement saying that they would want something different, a change, wouldn't get these inputs. They would be restricted from these inputs. From food. From food. Well, access to grow their own food, something as simple oh as fertilizer, because, you know, yeah. it gives you access to, if you, if you plant correctly in, in the planting season and you harvest, you could ha- harvest for two years wow. enough food to feed wow. a village. And if you don't have those inputs, you don't, you yeah. can't plant, you can't harvest. So Mugabe's uh, change really took place um, as we start going to the 90s and, the, and it, it, you know, we start to see for it come to fruition. Something took place in the southern part of the country referred to as Gukarahundi. Massacre of about 15,000 people of, the, of another tribe. Okay. And they, they were slaughtered about 15,000 to, 15 to 18,000 people in Gukrahundi. And these stories never really came to fruition. Part of it was due to access to media. So media was, you know, the only one television station, uh, one media channel becomes a very big propaganda machine. Oh, wow. Certain information yeah. is omitted. Is so there the, a tight relationship between government and the media? Then, oh, yeah. At this it, point? Oh, it is still the same today. Yeah. Even journalists, um, <clears throat> they get arrested. Uh, journalists, if they uh, produce corruption, uh, one of the cases I got involved in uh, was a friend of mine, Hope Chinono, uh, who's a journalist in Zimbabwe. Had um, you know, in twenty, I believe, twenty twenty one, he had uh, put out evidence showing uh, COVID funds corruption uh, tied to the highest office, and they arrested him. They arrested him three times wow. for putting this evidence out, and uh, wow. and then I did a petition to support that uh, that uh, the, the Drax case. So anyway. That still okay. exists today. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Mugabe's human rights abuses, um, yeah, very very bad. People disappear. Um, you know, things would, um, you know, people would never be found. But the most one that became common as media started paying attention to Zimbabwe was around the uh, land reform issue that took place in 2002 okay. with the white farmers and some of the farms were taken by force. And it wasn't just even just the white farmers. There were some farmers who might have been in committees, black farmers in committees with white farmers like tobacco committees, maize mm-hmm. committees, would lose their farms too, just through affiliation. With affi- through affiliation with whom? With a white farmer. Oh, wow. So if okay. you say you own a farm and I own a farm, we're in the same area. Yeah. And we have to both, um, you know, we have a committee that we both sit on because we're yeah. both farmers. We employ people. Yeah. Just but because, I'm white and you're mixed. Yes. Right. So they'll come for your farm and they'll say, well, his friend is this other guy. Let's go take his too. And they'll take mine. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wow. there, are, there are black farmers that have lost their farms just through the affiliation. It's Even, dangerous for you to associate with me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the 2002 land reform really put the spotlight on Mugabe. Uh, and, you know, you can say there was just an agenda process for the media. But the fact is violence was taking place uh, in oh. the country. So Morgan Tsongarai, the leader of the opposition at the time, 
uh, started really standing up and championing for change in this government. And then he, he himself experienced uh, violence leading into the 2008 elections, which is why you would say to me, are you, you know, are you yes. not afraid of being killed? Yeah. Because right. that is when people really got to see the Mugabe that Zimbabwe was crying out and talking about, saying this guy's violent, this guy's wow. human rights abuses. And when he started doing it to the, as someone who was challenging him as a contender for office, for the executive office, the world paid attention. So the stories were stifled for a very long time. Oh, very long until time. You, until you couldn't keep them quiet anymore. Correct. To the point where even he didn't uh, really care very much. Uh, you would say what he wanted. Very articulated man and spoke very well. If you watch some of his speeches, spoke very well the UN in New York. And then you get to a point where he would just tell you exactly how he felt. You you know, he would say stuff about Tony Blair at the UN summit and, and the whole world. So it got to a point where he just didn't care. Wow. Uh, didn't care anymore. So yeah, Mugabe was, is an interesting story. When is you know when we write about him in history, uh, it'll start off very well, like uh, you know John Carson, Johnny Carson's quotes states, and then it ends just with uh, blood on his hands and, and brutality. From liberator to oppressor. Absolutely. So while Mugabe was in power. Um, Zimbabwe went from being a regional breadbasket, as you mentioned before, agriculture has been a big part of the country, um, to seeing a collapse of the agricultural sector, massive hyperinflation. I mean, <laughs> these numbers are eye pop. I, I almost couldn't believe the numbers um, and, and needing to import food. And when I say like eye popping hyperinflation, according to Cato, uh, peak monthly inflation was 79.6 billion percent in November of 2008. And year-over-year inflation was 89.7 sextillion percent that November. (laughs) I I, I can't, those numbers are now like unfathomable to me. I can't even grasp what that means. So can can you talk about how that decline in agriculture production and the hyperinflation uh, has impacted Zimbabwe? How did that happen and how has it impacted the country? Yeah, so a uh, great question. And that one is a conversation that could be for hours uh, because it takes you back even to the land reform where they took the land from the white farmers. Now, uh, you can disagree or spe- and people can speculate on whether that was the right thing to do or not. Uh, there are some deals that were done with the UK and the US where they reneged on independence in the Lancaster House. So they were supposed to pay. The US did. The US did. Oh. The United States and, um, and the UK were supposed to pay a fee for about 10 years. Uh, part of uh, part of the independent struggle to prevent the land reform, but they reneged. They just said, we're not going to pay it. So the war veteran said, where's our land, right? We fought yeah. for liberation. Where's our land? We're, we're independent, but we don't have land. It's still, you know, there's still white farmers owning, you know, properties the size of Rhode Island, you know? Wow. Yeah. There's 65,000. The size hectares. of Rhode Island in Utah. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. Utah. In, yeah. In side, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's people owning large, large sugarcane sugar plant, plantations, uh, the size of, you know, you know, one quarter of the country, the Southern part of the country. It's owned by one, one white farmer. So liber- you know, the war veterans saw this. So when Mugabe said, go get your land and they essentially went and got the land, what happened is some of these farms were high producing farms. And so there's one I know in uh, around Victoria Falls that produced a tremendous amount of oranges and citrus fruit that does nothing now. Even the elephants have migrated to Zambia. They've crossed oh, right across wow. the Zambezi River on top of Victoria Falls because there's no food for them to eat. So they're now in Zambia. So there's there Zimbabwean elephants that have left the country. It's not just people. So the management of that land reform is what we saw lead up to uh, the um, – you know, to food shortage and, okay. you know, you add drought on top of that, some other natural disaster. So it was just poor management all around of, the, so okay. if they have said, we're going to do 
land reform. There could have been a way that that could have done it could have been done in a uh, in a sense that wouldn't cripple the economy. Okay, you know, so uh, they didn't pay attention to that, and then some sanctions were thrown onto the country. Some Zid- Zid- uh, U.S. threw Zidera sanctions onto Zimbabwe. And why but, why was that? Uh, one is on uh, national parastatals, and the other one was on. Um, they they claim for human rights abuses, but there are financial uh, economic sanctions on individuals and entities. Some of those entities are governmental uh, entities uh, that people need to rely on. Uh, so that's also a debate of its own. Okay. But it, all these sanctions prevented um, essentially friends of the United States doing business with Zimbabwe as we start to see into going leading into 2008, the hyperinflation. Yeah. Now, yes. let's come full circle to where we are today. Yes. The hyperinflation today has got nothing to do with these two things I just mentioned. Okay. Sanctions okay. and land reform, right? Okay, right. Because now we had a new currency introduced uh, in 2008, the, you know, the RTGS, which is essentially leaves of falling off a branch. Oh but my just God. year okay. to date right now, we are uh, in July uh, of 2022. Year to date, the inflation is already over 400 and some 439%, I believe, oh my God. right now. The currency. So, so what happened to the original? What, what is what is this eighty nine point seven sextillion percent in uh, hyperinflation it, back then in two thousand eight? Disappeared and went full dollarization. So, so the currency just went away because just, it was useless. Just so they away. just printed so much of it. That yes. It was, there was a one. Uh, there was a one. Uh, uh, there was a ten billion dollar bill. One oh my bill. god. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get I'll get you one, and you can use it as a bookmark. Oh my god. I have one laminated I, as a bookmark. I, I, I really want a ten billion dollar bill. <laughs> yeah, you can buy one on eBay for like twenty bucks. <laughs> And it's real, printed by the printed government by the of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. Yes, it's oh real. My God. Yeah, it's real. This is why Bitcoiners, when I was there, they they loved to say, "Oh, we know about you guys." In that <laughs> I was like, "Yes." So, so this is this is the Zimbabwean dollar that we're talking about. The Zimbabwean, so, Zimbabwean dollar, ten billion dollars. Okay, that's a, so, so so that currency went away completely. And, completely went away. Dollarization okay. and the economy started picking up again. Okay, so they had the joint government, uh, two thousand eight, Morgan Shangri, Robin Mugabe. So after that, they dollarized, dollarized, which means they pegged it to the dollar. Correct. Okay. And used uh, U.S. currency on the ground. Oh, okay. They're actually using U.S. currency. Yeah, and, okay. and they went away from it. Now we're back at it again. Now there's U.S. currency on the ground right now. Okay. I was just there two weeks ago, and no one wants the local currency. Everyone wants the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar. Okay. So uh, dollarized again. So 2017, the coup takes place. Yeah. Uh, 2018, they introduce uh, the Zimbabwean dollar back at it again. We need to have our own currency, and the economy tanks immediately because the way, again— the way the process is done makes a big difference. They wake up, in, people just woke up in the morning and said, all the money in your bank account, which has been for the last 10 years, uh, U.S. currency, is now Zimbabwean dollar one for one. No. I swear to God. I was actually on the ground doing a solar deal in Zimbabwe, doing a large uh, solar project, and the deal fell apart. We literally woke up that morning, and we met with, our, uh, with the backers and a big African bank, and they said, yeah, we're not going to do anything in Zimbabwe. We want to see how this plays out. And wow. the project just completely fell apart. They just seized all the dollars that they had yep. the custody of and converted them to Zimbabwean dollars. Yep. And, and you found banks like Barclays Bank just exited the country. Wow. Yeah. They, what are you going to do? You know, this is a non-recognized yeah. currency. All of right. a sudden you say, hey, this is yeah. this is it. And by so, the way, it's a non-recognized currency that we have the printer for, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. And so here we are from 2008, four years later, that currency is now 1 to 700, I believe. Oh. 700 to the U.S. dollar. Okay. And so just loss of um, the economy's round two hyperinflation. Yeah. Okay. So, so you mentioned the coup, uh, and and that was in 2017. So, when we think of a military coup, especially in the United States, we assume, you know, there's going to be some change in the ruling party. Um, but in this case, in 2017, Mugabe was removed from power and replaced with his former vice president Menangawa. 
the infrastructure of ZANU-PF, the party, um, stayed in place. Uh, some of so, it. Some of it. So have there been any substantive changes um, in how Menangawa rules and uh, and as a result of the military coup? Uh, no. <laughs> Very okay. straight. And you used a key word when yeah. you mentioned that he was removed in military coup by his former VP. Yeah, right. He wasn't VP at the time. And this ah, okay. is, there's, there's a court case right okay. now that's going saying that he wasn't uh, supposed to take office. Because he wasn't in the line of succession. Correct. He, okay. had, he had now left the country. You know, he wasn't the vice president anymore, and he had left the country for whatever reason. You know, as people would note and try to argue, debate about, he had left the country. He wasn't, he wasn't in, in the country at the time. So he comes back, takes power. Um, <clears throat> I was glad to see that there wasn't a civil war. Uh, I was against. Obviously, we don't want a coup. Right. Once you open that gate, yeah. you open that door. Uh, as Africa is known for its military coups, yeah. Zimbabwe's was not. Uh, it can get very bloody very fast. Very fast. So I was glad to see that didn't happen. We didn't have a civil uprising in Zimbabwe. They went into the streets, called the soldiers out, and then they had the change change of power, and he resigned. What I think Zimbabwe's didn't realize is the the strong arm, or essentially the henchman of Mugabe. They would say Mugabe was, and he was a brutal brutal dictator, and died that way. Died being known as that. But the hand that would go around the country and commit some of the atrocities was Emerson. Oh, so this wow. came to light now. Oh, yeah. Wow. So August 8, people are protesting in the streets uh, of 2018, uh, debating the elections, stolen elections. And they sent soldiers with live rounds into the streets and shot people with the media and everything. Media coverage on the ground, everything. And immediately the dark days of Zimbabwe returned. And people realized very quickly that we, uh, we just went from one frying pan right into another one. Wow. And so even today where you look at the economy and you look at cronyism, nepotism, yeah. trying to build the economy, nothing has changed unless you are a supporter of PF and you're a supporter of, of, of Emerson. Yeah. There were some loyalists where I said some of the structures had changed. There were some loyalists to Mugabe and some of them family members were loyalists to Mugabe. Uh, they were ousted because they didn't support the coup. Yeah. So the moment the coup was successful, they ran, ran out of the country. And they're essentially known as the G40. They were sort of Grace Mugabe's regime. Yeah. So and those folks, uh, basically that's in, in-house fighting within ZANO-PF. But the people of the country are uh, still oppressed. Um, and so nothing really has changed. What looks like development is uh, now foreign done. Uh, you know, you see the influence of China. You see the influence of Russia. You see the influence of Belarus and strong arming uh, the government and just regimes that in their own countries, struggle even with their own economic development, are in Zimbabwe and taking the resource out. And the Zimbabwean people are still suffering today. So nothing's really changed. So uh, in describing the coup, Carson, who I mentioned earlier, the ambassador, said that we need to think about it not as a response to, to ZANU or Mugabe's policies, but as a move to ensure his politically ambitious wife didn't succeed him. Was that, can you? That's exactly it. Yeah, so that's exactly it. The reason this all started and even how Emerson even lost his position as a vice president was this idea that Grace thought this was some sort of hierarchy. She was next in line. Grace was Mugabe's wife. Grace Mugabe's wife, yes. And they called it Gucci Grace because she would go on $2 million, $5 million shopping sprees in the United States because they were under sanctions. So the only time they'd come to the U.S. was for the U.N. summit. And she would bring a, a plane with 20 of her friends, go shopping on Madison Avenue. And drop $2 million and people are starving back in Zimbabwe. She, yeah. She's like Imelda Marcos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? I mean, that's, this, yeah. Yeah. So she, they called it Gucci Grace. Wow. So she thought she was next in line and, and would say this publicly in public gatherings. 
And so the coup took place to prevent that from happening. Yeah. So it wasn't because it was meant for the Zimbabwean people. Okay. So there was some hope after Mugabe took over uh, that even if there wasn't significant movement uh, on government reform, that there might be some business reform. You mentioned economic development. How has that played? How has that played out since Emerson took over? It has tried to improve, and the reason I say it has tried to improve on the business side of things is because uh, there's some structures that have been put in place. One which I favorably like, which is called ZEDA, Zimbabwean Investment uh, Development Agency, it's, but it's, it's known as ZEDA, and they are there where if you know if you or I wanted to go start a business in Zimbabwe, we can. That's a starting point, but the ease of business is not. You still have to deal with. Corruption. You still have to deal with nepotism. You still have to deal with uh, an evolving currency. Like today, you don't know what's going to, you know, you don't know if you can make it or not make it. You don't know if you can cover expenses, not cover expenses. Or they're going to seize it tomorrow and yeah, they're gonna seize print it a tomorrow. trillion dollar bill. Or- There's no rule of law. There's no judicial system that holds account- accountability to, to transactions and investment. You're not protected by no means. So while, yes, you can start something or even get, potentially get in an opportunity to do something, your, your investment is so short-lived, you can't even leave that and say, I can use this as a risk factor somewhere else. I can use this to leverage another investment. I have a risky mm-hmm. investment somewhere else. So the guys looking at it, it'll look like there's development. But then you look and see who's getting all these deals. Yeah. It's the same people. It's the same people essentially doing the passports, building roads, building roundabouts. It's the same same entity that's getting all these wow. deals just dressed up differently. But it leads to essentially to one one or two people uh, in the country. So the Pandora Papers are interesting. We can't talk about that now, of course, yeah. but the, it highlights these things. There was another period of hyperinflation. I want to I want to come back to economic development. There was another period of of uh, hyperinflation in 2019, um, and it was difficult to get water, fuel, um, power wasn't readily available. Um, how has the refusal for liberal democracy uh, reform right? Um, hampered the economic development then recovery of, of Zimbabwe. Yeah, so I like the fact that he used refusal. Um, okay. You know, it's interesting. It's an interesting term. I think they tried, you know, because the first thing Emerson did as soon as he got in was try to go back and join the Commonwealth. Okay. But it failed. Uh, failed dismally. Because there, and they even made, I was shocked that he even did this. He even made a public commitment to pay back the white farmers for the land that was taken. Wow. Now, keep in mind, this is a liberation warrior, someone who who says, hey, I fought the war against the whites, but in order for us to do this, I'm going to try and pay it back. They just couldn't. It's not in his DNA (laughs) to to make things right. And so they wouldn't be transparent in other areas. The shooting of August 1, 2008 of the victims, an inquiry was launched. No one was ever arrested, even though media have footage of the actual soldiers. You could probably zoom in and read the name tags on these folks, and no one was arrested. Uh, for for these atrocities, and they continue to happen, the disappearances of people, and so as you start c- come and you add that on to economic collapse because you've now changed the currency, no one trusts you anymore. Yeah. Uh, people are taking their resources into South Africa, taking them elsewhere. You start to see fuel shortages that were taking place. Now, in economics and, and in business, um, you have to look at things in a way that, in order to create a market for someone else to succeed, you have to also create it where it removes the current supplier. So now you look and say, who's supplying fuel now? Mm-hmm. Who was supplying it before? Who's supplying it now? You can say, who's supplying power now? Who was supplying it before? So, you know, when the power, and I know. So when the power shortages start taking place in the grid, if you take that across these, the South African company that provides power, 
um, they, they were started selling to Zimbabwe. They started selling power to Zimbabwe to the tune of about 30 million U.S. a month. And then you start to see load shedding taking place in Johannesburg. Because oh, keep in mind, there's no, yeah. there's no jurisdiction on the money portion once it, this company is providing power into a foreign land. The government of South Africa can't really- Can't do anything. Can't do anything because out of their jurisdiction. Right. Yeah, so they, they uh, were doing this. So when we look at business and what we might think is economic struggle, could even be considered engineered economic struggle to make a change so someone else comes in and provides that resource. Wow. Yeah. So someone favorable. So if there was someone that was a favor of, say, the Mugabe regime and they came back and said, we've got this contract that we signed in 2013, you know, we've been doing a great job of supplying this. You can create the economic instability for that company to eventually leave the market and then allow another foreign entity or another local supplier to come in that's backed by something else. Yeah. So is it, it, so. To answer your question very yeah. quickly, Zimbabwe should never have to go through these turmoil, these ups and these roller coasters of economy. Yeah, they right. go through there because of through regime change, so does the backers of that regime change take place. Yeah. And that would even take place even with us, to be honest with yeah. you. So if we get into power in 2023, there will be a change. There will be a, a pain period that Zimbabwe will go through because we have to go back and look at the contracts that exist in our society. And we have to break those. If they are not favorable to the people of Zimbabwe, put a strain on the people of Zimbabwe, whether it's waste refusal, uh, you know, energy development, uh, transmission of power, uh, manufacturing. If they're run by entities that are not benefiting the Zimbabwean people but benefiting themselves, we have to change that. So there will be a pain period that we'll go through. But the difference is the realm in which we're doing it uh, for our party is going to be in a place that even after I leave uh, office, I've served my time and I leave office, though that infrastructure stays in and creates jobs and creates yeah. a, a livable wage for people, which is not the case today. This is a perfect segue. Okay, so, but, but just to put a fine point on this, BBC journalist uh, Alan Kasuja said on a podcast that inflation was happening so quickly that if people went to eat, they'd pay for their food when they ordered because the cost could rise between when they started eating and when they finished because of inflation. Yeah, and that was the currency. That, yeah, that was when the currency got introduced. So yeah. my wife and I were there in 2019 for our honeymoon, and uh, we went to Kariba. By the time we left Harare, I believe it was like one to, the currency was uh, one U.S. dollar to 11 or 12 uh, Zimbabwean, uh, Zimbabwean, uh, Zimbabwean dollar. By the time we got to Kariba, which is like a five-hour drive, it was a one. To, it was it moved from one to sixteen. Oh my god! Yeah, by the time we got there, so the easiest part was just to use your card. You know, at the yeah. time you could use your debit right. card, and now you can't. Um, you, know, you can't. You can't. They want the cash in US. Wow. Yeah. They. They. So if you go into the capital city right now, <clears throat> they won't do it because they they want that forex in in hard currency and in, in, in hard cash. Yeah. So people are just walking with wads, you know, with, with money, and hoping the ATM can spit money out. <laughs> Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.